Welcome back to Coaching Kernan. I'm Dave D'Agostino. I'm here with my co-host, Kevin Kernan, America's most beloved sports writer and Hall of Famer. We're on episode 28, and it is August 29, 2022, and this episode is one of our real voices of the game. We're honored and excited to have longtime Major League Baseball scout and lifelong Chicago Cub, most recent inductee into the New York State Hall of Fame, Billy Blitzer. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much, and that induction won't take place until November, so I'm not there yet. Not quite there yet, but we're hopeful, right? Ready? Oh, it's coming. It's coming. Yeah, <laughs> and you're with another inductee here, Kevin. As you know, Kevin was inducted into the New York State Baseball Hall of Fame as well. So I, was, I was there that evening, and nice. I'm very proud to know him as a friend for many years. Yeah. Well, welcome to the show. Uh, we're excited to have you here, and I wanted to start off with a question, uh, just a name, and I want you to kind of tell the story around the name and its significance to you and your career. Ralph DeLulo. Oh, Ralph DeLulo is a legendary scout, but without him, I wouldn't be talking to you today. Uh, you know, I'll tell you the story how how I got started in scouting, and, and it's all because of Ralph. Uh, I was attending Hunter College. And I knew I wasn't going to be a Major League Baseball player, but I wanted to stay in the game somehow. So I found a team in the parade grounds in Brooklyn to coach, a Sandlot team. And the name of the organization is Youth Service. And uh, this Youth Service, over the years, I'm still associated with them over 50 years. They produced Sean Dunstan and Manny Ramirez and Julio Lugo and a recent Dellen Patances, Adam Adovino, and many, many others. But I was coaching this Sandlot team, and I was waiting for my game at the parade grounds, and this old man sits down next to me. And I say old man. I'm older than him now, but to me, he was an old man. And uh, Ralph sits down next to me, and we just started to chat, and he says to me, what are you doing here? I said, I'm going to ca- I'm gonna coach the next game. And he says to me, well, I'm going to watch. I said, I don't care. You can watch. And we played the game. And as I'm packing the equipment, Ralph comes over to me. He's on the other side of the fence. And he says, "Uh, young man, I'd like to talk to you. I said, about what? He says, my name's Ralph DeLulo. I'm with the Major League Scouting Bureau. And I said, what's that? And now this is 1975. And the Bureau had just begun. So I had no idea. I never heard of the Major League Scouting Bureau. So he explains to me that the Bureau represents at that time, 20 major league teams. Uh, there were six or eight clubs that weren't in this in the bureau. You didn't have to be in at the time. And I said, oh, you want to talk to me about my shortstop? Because my shortstop ended up having a cup of coffee in the big leagues. His name was Willie Lozado, and he played for the Milwaukee Brewers. And he says to me, no, I want to talk to you about you. So I looked at him kind of quizzically, and I said, I didn't play. Well, when does a scout look at a coach? He says, well, listen, you're coaching kids your own age, basically. I was only a year or two older than them because I had high school age kids. And uh, he says to me, you seem to know what you're doing. Give me your phone number. I'm going to call you during the week. And I want you to meet me like you did today before your game. And we're going to sit and watch a game together. I said, why? He said, don't ask me so many questions. Just give me your phone number. <laughs> but reluctantly, I gave him my number. I went home and I told my parents what had happened. I said, you know, I don't know if this guy's on the level or he's some character, he's a nut. You know, we have a lot of characters running around Brooklyn, so I don't know if he's legit or not. But Ralph called me during the week and he came back to the parade grounds and I sat with him and he started pointing things out to me on the field. And uh, he said to me, I'm going to run a tryout camp here in Brooklyn but you know everybody. You're going to invite all the players, and I'm going to run four tryout camps in New Jersey and two in Long Island and one up in Westchester because this is the first year, and I'd like you to accompany me and help me run the tryout camps. So that's how my career started. And without Ralph, like I said, you know, he he was my mentor. He was my rabbi, whatever you want to call him. I mean, without Ralph, I'm not here. And, uh, you know, the funny thing with Ralph, when, when I started, he used to tell me stories. He knew this one, he knew that one, and he would tell me different stories. And I used to say to myself, is he on the level? Is he telling me the truth? But, you know, all these years later, I know everybody in baseball, and I have plenty of stories to tell. So, 
you know, uh, they're, they're all legit. But the one big one that stood out for me when I started to believe Ralph as a reward, he took me to the New York Sports Writers Dinner in January uh, of that year. And uh, there's always a big cocktail hour before that dinner. And Ralph knew the people for us to get in. And before the dinner, he told me, Jim Bunning's going to be there. I was his first manager in the minor leagues. And I'm going, yeah, you know Jim Bunning. You know, uh, again, I don't believe him. As we walk through the door, I'm looking around the room, and there's all these famous people and whatnot. And Jim Bunning's on the other side of the room having a conversation with a number of people. And as soon as he spotted Ralph, he stopped his conversation, started running across the room and said, hey, Skip, hey, Skip, and hugged him. From that point on, I believed every story Ralph ever told me. That's That's fantastic. What, what, What kind of player were you at Hunter College? I played the outfield in college. I played third base in high school, and uh, I played the outfield at Hunter. I could swing the bat and throw, but I couldn't run a lick. And I used to tell people, you know, during my career, like you just asked me, I I had to be a good kid growing up because if I ever did anything wrong, the cops would catch me. (laughs) Can't get away. You you played with a a very good player in high school who ended up being a tremendous major league player uh, by the name of Lee Mazzilli. Give us your scatter report on him. Well, yes, I did. Uh, You know, I I tell the story. I didn't have to be a scout to know that he was going to be a major leaguer. But I was a senior and a pretty good player, and Lee was a sophomore. He came out for the team. And uh, here comes a kid, young kid. He could switch hit. He can throw with both arms. I had never seen that before. He could run like the wind. And Lee was, a a lot of people don't know, he was a United States speed skating champion on ice. His dad used to drive him around the country to these different venues, and and he would race, and and Lee was a winner. So here he could could do all these things, and he could break on balls in the outfield and run down balls. And I told the other guys on the team, I said, this kid's a lot better than us. We're going to be paying to watch him play one of these days. And sure enough... Two years later, he was a first-round draft pick for the New York Mets. And uh, Lee and I have been friends all these years. You know, we'd see one another at the ballpark, especially when he worked for the Yankees. You go up to the press room before the game, I'd see him, and we'd have lunch or dinner together. And uh, we've been friends, like I said, since we're teenagers. Yeah, he's a, you know, he's a character, too. And uh, that's the great thing about baseball. One of the things I wanted to ask you, Billy, was uh, and we're talking to Billy Blitzer here longtime scout is can you explain to people because people don't a lot of people you know just getting into baseball we're trying to be information based here just explain because you've done both ends amateur scout and a pro scout just explain the two differences sure uh amateur scout you go around to the high schools and colleges and uh you, you see players, and, and you're not only watching players for this upcoming draft. As I'm going to a game, I might see a sophomore or a junior, and you put his name down and, and you follow him, not only during the high school or college season, you try to follow him during the summer. Uh, see, today they have all these showcases, but when I was scouting on the amateur side, you had all these Sandlot teams, and you pretty much spent your weekends at the ballparks. You would drive all over. Uh, I would start at, let's say, nine o'clock in the morning. I had a veteran scout, Steve Lembo, longtime scout with the Dodgers. He was also a mentor to me. We would, let's say, meet at the parade grounds at nine o'clock in the morning, and we might have a 12 o'clock game up in Westchester someplace and end up on Long Island for a six o'clock game. So you're seeing games all day. And you'd follow these kids and uh, you come up with names. Uh, I'll give you a good example. I was watching a a, a high school tournament, I remember, in Long Island, and uh, Walter Weiss was on a team from up in Suffern, New York, and he came down, and I I took his name, and and that's how I ended up finding him. You know, you see kids during the summer, and you just follow them them on in, or uh, in December, the off months, January, you would send letters to high school coaches and college coaches asking them for recommendations, not only on their own team or if they've seen somebody on another team. And that's how I came up with uh, Bobby Bonier and Devon White. 
their coaches sent their names in. I went and followed them up, and uh, they were, were unknowns up until that point. And I well, was this working- is a real this is a real boots on the ground type thing, man. Oh, you gotta, absolutely, got to be out there. Yeah, and absolutely, and a lot of people don't know. I started with the Major League Scouting Bureau, as I told you before, with Ralph. And I was there for uh, seven years, four years as an associate. That's a a scout that doesn't get paid. And three years under contract, they hired me. And then uh, I went to the Cubs because I had a a good reputation. Here I work seven years. I'm only 28 years old. I started when I was 21, when I was at Hunter College. And And I came up with Bobby Bonilla and Devon White and Walter Weiss and BJ Serhoff. And of course, Johnny Franco in my backyard. Uh, and, you know, so here I, I, I found these major league players and a, a lot of scouts wouldn't come into New York City in those years. We're, to, we're talking uh, the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, New York was a rough place, especially up in the Bronx. Yeah, the David Dinkins years and all those things. You yeah. know, it was rough. And, and when the scouts came in, they came in in packs. You know, they were afraid to come in. And here I come along. I grew up in New York. I played on a lot of these fields and I coached a lot of kids, you know, with this youth service group. And a lot of these kids were minority kids that played in the Spanish leagues up in the Bronx here in Brooklyn. So if I would go up to these leagues, I would tell these kids and they would tell their coaches, Billy Blitz is coming up. Keep an eye on him. Right, right. And, and, and seeing the Spanish leagues, that must have been awesome. Oh, it was it was really great. I go into Central Park. I go up to Cretona Park up in the Bronx. I remember going up to the South Bronx, Cretona Park, and there were burnt out buildings on the other side of the street. And the coach sent one of the kids to go sit on my car. So I'd have four tires on the car by the time I left. And they, they would keep an eye on me. But I wasn't afraid to go up. They knew it. And, you know, the coaches and the kids really appreciated it, that I would come up and I'd expose them meaning write reports and, and other scouts would have to come up. Yeah, you were doing a great service to the community. You know, I, I'll give you one kid, and it's a really a great story. Uh, I found a kid, and it was I, I saw him in his last high school game. I, I forget the high school, and uh, he fl- failed off the teams. He was playing in the Spanish leagues on the weekend. His name was uh, Rodriguez. He ended up being a third-round pick for the Phillies. But but what had happened, he was a pitcher. But what had happened was he failed off the team, and I had filed my report. So the only way the guys could see him was pitching in the Spanish League in uh, Betsy Head Park here in Brooklyn in East New York. So what happened was a load of scouts would meet me at the parade grounds, and this was funny. They'd meet me at the parade grounds, and they would form like a, you'd see a funeral line of cars. And they followed me to Betsy Head Park and they watched the game. I remember one game, Al Cuccinello was a long time old scout with the Yankees. And all these scouts were there and Al standing next to me. And and, and they, these kids were so happy that scouts had come to Betsy Head sure, Park to sure. see him. And Al turns to me and he goes, Billy, if this guy can't pitch, we're going to hang you from that flagpole. <laughs> But your those, reputation was on the line there. Yeah, but 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 that that's the way things were done, and the kid ended up getting drafted in the third round. But the right. scouts were afraid to come in. But after I was turning these kids in, the scouting directors told these scouts, "You better get into New York City. This kid's coming up with players." Yes. And uh, in 1982, when Dallas Green came to the Cubs and they were looking to put a staff together, I became friends with Gary Nichols in his pursuit of Sean Dunstan. And uh, he recommended that they hire me because the scouts didn't have any scouts pretty much in the Northeast because when this Major League Scouting Bureau came into being, it's just ironic. Ralph DeLulo had worked for the Cubs for 25 years. Amazing. And uh, uh, whatchamacallit, Lenny Marullo, worked for the Cubs up in New England, who played for the Cubs. And they were both hired by the Bureau. So the Cubs didn't replace them, figuring they're getting the reports from their own scouts because they worked for the Cubs, but they now work for the Bureau. So Frank DeMoss, who was my first supervisor, used to he came in from West Virginia. Lenny and Ralph would tell him who to come see. And uh, so actually when when I replaced, uh, Gary was here for the one year. When I replaced, I was really the first true scout from the area since Ralph, which is ironic. 
So Ralph was here for 25 years and I was here for, for 40. <laughs> Pretty long time. No, that's, 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 that's wonderful stuff. And, and, the, uh, and then you, pro scouting, when did you move into pro scouting? I moved into pro scouting the year before Theo Epstein came in. Uh, Jim Hendry had moved me over because while I was doing the amateur scouting after the draft, they gave me a lot of pro work. They they saw, uh, you know, I, I guess I had a good eye and I would come up with prospects in the minor leagues and things like that for trades. And the difference between pro scouting is amateur scouting. On the pro side, you scout the minor leagues and the big leagues and you scout other organizations for trades. And the organizations that you're given or the teams to scout, you may not make a deal now, but you may make a deal six months down the line or a year down the line and they have your reports and they could refer back to them. So uh, Jim brought me over to the pro side. He said, I'd like you to do it full time. And I was always leery about going over full time. He wanted me to do it previously, but I was always afraid that I would get bored sitting and watching uh, the big leagues all the time. So I said, okay, I'll come over, but give me mostly minor league stuff to do. Because minor league stuff, looking at the lower levels, it's like you're scouting amateur players. You're looking for prospects. Yeah, and that's your comfort zone. Yeah, and maybe I could steal players from another team, which I I was pretty good at it. You know, I would put in reports, and when we'd make trades like you see today, clubs don't want to trade their higher level prospects. They know what they got, but they're willing to trade somebody lower down because that kid may be three, four years away from the big leagues, and you don't really know if he's going to develop or not. But I seem to have a knack for finding these kids, you know, and being able to project. So I finally relented, and uh, I said, okay, I'll come to the pro side, but give me mostly minor league. They gave me big league stuff too, but I preferred to do that, and I, I was only afraid if I got bored doing this, they would have given my job away on the amateur side, and then I'd probably have to leave the organization and go someplace else that would give me a job on the amateur side. So uh, I went, like I said, the year before. So I guess it was about 14 years ago, 15 years ago, I went to the pro side. And that's where I stayed until I retired uh, last year. Billy, when you're when you're watching an amateur player, we, we have a big audience of, we have a big audience of Major League Baseball people, but we also have a big following with the amateur side with parents and youth coaches and players. Um, when you're looking at it, an amateur player, talk to our audience a little bit. What do your eyes see first? Um, and then kind of, I know it's hard because you do it intuitively probably now, but take us back to your breakdown a little bit about what you look for in a player. Well, you know, you're always looking at the five tools, which is, you know, hitting, hitting for power, making contact, uh, running, throwing, fielding. You know, you're looking at those things. Uh, I would always get to the ballpark early. When I, and when I say early, I get there when the kids are coming out of the school, when they're coming onto the field. I want to see how serious they are about it, how about how they go about their business, how they react to the other players on the team. Are they loners? Are they friendly? Uh, how they react to instruction from the coaches, and just looking at the ability that they have. Uh, but there's a like I said, all these little things, they all seem to add up. And, uh, again, you have to have tools and, uh, baseball really is not a game of size. You know, uh, I guess if you look f- football, basketball, you're looking for big guys, but size never used to really bother me. Uh, as far as kid doesn't have to be big. I mean, you don't want a real little guy, but, uh, if if a guy is five foot ten, five foot nine, and he can fly or something, you overlook certain things like that. Uh, I re I remember, I mean, there's different players. I remember going to see Jason Marquis, let's say, in Staten Island. I was cross checking at the time, and we had a new scout here in the New York area, and uh, I was hearing a lot of good things. Plus, I was looking for a game to come home, to come off the road, and Jason was pitching in Staten Island. And there must have been about 30 scouts there, some scouting directors and cross-checkers, including myself as a cross-checker. And uh, my my scout didn't have him in that high. And I had, was watching him pitch, and I had him as a first-round guy. And uh, 
I said, and he said, he's a little guy. He kept describing him to me as a little guy. And I went over to him and I was trying to teach him. And I said, he's not a little guy. I said, he's put together pretty good. I said, Freddie Patek might've been short in height, but he was put together pretty, pretty well also. And, and uh, you have to look at those things, you know? And, and uh, so size, as far as height, never used to bother me. There are plenty of guys in the big leagues. That, that are short in stature, but, you know, could play. But uh, you'd look at size, you'd look at tools and makeup. And makeup is really the hardest thing because you don't know how a kid's going to react. I mean, everybody reacts great in, in, when things are going good, but you want to see, sometimes you want to see a pitcher get into trouble during a ball game to see if he's going to dig down deep and how he's going to get out of it. And uh, I'll give you a perfect example of makeup. I went to see probably one of the biggest playoff games in history on Long Island. Stephen Matz was pitching in high school against Marcus Stroman. Now, I had originally seen Stroman as a second baseman. I didn't even know he could pitch. And uh, everybody's going out to see Matz, including myself. And I have a cross checker. I had gone back to being an area guy. And I had a cross checker with me. And we're walking towards the bullpen where Matz is going to warm up and Stroman's warming up. And I stop and I said to my cross checker, boy, this kid's throwing the ball pretty good. I said, I've seen him play second base. I know he's going to Duke on a scholarship, but he's throwing the ball. It's like he's going out here saying, you guys are all coming to see Matz, but you're going to watch me. And this game ended up being a shutout until the last inning and then, uh, Matz's team won on a wild pitch or a pass ball or whatever it was. They won one to nothing in that game. But uh, Stroman came out there, and like I said, his makeup was off the charts as far as competing. And uh, when he was pitching for the Blue Jays, I happened to see him in spring training in Dunedin. I was in the stands, and he came up, and he was sitting in front of me. And I tapped him on the shoulder. I introduced myself. I said who I was. And he says, Mr. Blitzer, I remember who you are. You're with the Cubs. And I told him I was there that day. And I told him, I said, you came out there that day to prove to everybody that you're as good or better than Steven Matz. And he smiled at me. He says, you know what you're looking at. <laughs> that's what he told me that day. Uh, and that's, so, <clears throat> that's so funny, Billy, because um, same thing. He was with Toronto. And I go to Dunedin and do a story on him. And, uh, you know, the first thing he brings up to me was, uh, well, you know, all the scouts came to see Matt's and blah, blah, see? blah. Yeah. So, so he, he still, he still has that chip on his shoulder. And uh, that, that was something as a scout you recognized early, which is a credit to you. Yeah. I, I saw that right away. I told it to him and he smiled at me and, uh, you know, that's him. He pitches with, because he's a little guy. He's got the little guy complex. What can I tell you? Well, speaking of little guys, uh, give us uh, the breakdown on Jamie Moore and how that all happened. Well, you know, the, the funny thing is when Jamie was drafted, in all honesty, there were only two scouts that were on him, myself, and there was an old scout from the Phillies named Joe Riley. We were the only two teams, and, and I had seen Jamie pitch in a Labor Day tournament in York, Pennsylvania. There was a, a longtime tournament there. And uh, I went looking through the rosters. Gary Nichols and I were both there. And we looked through the rosters and we tried to find rosters where you had a lot of college guys. Because you have a lot of ex-players or older guys playing in this tournament. And the field that I went to see him on was out in the, in the farmland someplace. I mean, corn was growing like you'd see in Field of Dreams or something. Yeah, you know? I've been out there in that tournament, so I know what you're saying, yeah. You know, you got the old wooden stands, and, and Jamie comes out and pitches, and uh, he's going into his junior year in college. This is in the fall in September, and he's just changing speeds and throwing a changeup and a curveball, and he just kind of spiked my interest. I kind of liked him. And uh, Gary came over in the middle of the game, and he saw it too. He's, and I said, you know, I'm going to follow this kid going, going into uh, the spring next year. So, of course, I sent for the schedule, and I'm down in Florida. And he went to St. Joe's in Philadelphia. And St. Joe's, uh, they're going to play a game at the University of Central Florida. 
and there were two others. There were three other scouts there that day. There was uh, Ben McClure was with the Blue Jays. Brad Kohler was with the Scouting Bureau. And a new scout, Tony DeMacio, who later went on to become the scouting director uh, with the Baltimore Orioles and the Atlanta Braves. And it was Tony's first game. He didn't know anybody. And I went over and introduced myself. And Tony sat with us. And the four of us watched Jamie pitch. And he pitched very well. And Brad Kohler put a report in on him with the scouting bureau. So Jamie's next game, you're always looking for game scouts from the north, was uh, down at Florida Southern. And there must have been 20 scouts there that day. We're all sitting there. And I'll never forget, first inning. Jamie gives up a base hit. He walks the next guy. The second baseman makes an error. It's now bases loaded, no outs, first inning. And next guy hits a grand slam over the right field fence. He's down 4 nothing without getting an out. Wow. By the third inning, I look to my right, nobody. I look to my left, nobody. By the third inning, I'm the only scout left. Everybody left. Now, Jamie, you know, uh, he didn't pitch as slow as he did at the end of his career. But on the radar guns that we used at the time, he was 82 to 84, which would have been like 84 to 87. Okay. Major, Major League velocity at the time was like 89 miles an hour. So he was a little short. He topped out at 87, maybe touched 88. So the guys didn't see velocity on their guns, and they left. And I sat there, and he didn't give up a run for the rest of the game. He pitched nine innings that day. He gave up those runs in the first. I put in my report. I followed him back up north. And uh, when I was watching Old Timers Day with the Mets the other day, Alida came out. And on probably the greatest scouting day, I would have to say in my life, I saw Al Leiter Easter week pitch for Tom's River, his high school, and he struck out 17. From that game, I'll never forget, Joe Riley was at the game. I walked over to Joe Riley. I said, you're going to go see Moyer pitch this afternoon. The game was at Villanova. They were using their field. He said, yeah. Now, Joe was from the Philadelphia area. I said, do you mind if I follow you from here in Tom's River? There was no GPS then. I said, I don't want to get lost. He said, really, you can follow me. I wouldn't let anybody else because Joe was always to himself, but he liked me. So I followed him and I saw Leiter and Moya the same day (laughs) as an amateur. Probably the greatest day I had scouting, you know, to see two big leaguers like that. Wow. And uh, I ended up getting Jamie in the sixth round. That's fantastic. And, uh, and it's just so kids understand. I think this bounces back to what Dave said earlier, but you know, you can impress scouts, or you you can just do it different ways. And this, you know, you don't have to be the biggest or strongest. You can just uh, you can you can be sometimes use your brains and uh, and command. I guess the key word here is command. What kind of command did you see from Jamie Moore? Well, that that's what set him apart. Jamie threw strikes and he changed speeds and. You know, uh, when you look at big leaguers, guys that throw hard in their careers, sometimes they can't adjust. But Jamie never threw hard. And he was changing speeds his entire career. And uh, Jamie's biggest thing, he used to tell me and he would tell people in interviews, his job is to disrupt a hitter's timing. And that's what it was all about with him. And and that's what he would do. And uh, I used to kid him. When he was getting close to 40 years old, I told him, oh, you don't have to retire. You can pitch until you're 50. You're not going to lose anything off your fastball. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it was funny. I, I went to a Christmas party uh, one winter out on Long Island, and Tommy John happened to be there. And I, I went over to Tommy. I'd never met him. I told him who I was, and I told him I had signed Jamie Moyer. And uh, Jamie at the time was like 38, 39. And I said to Tommy, uh, how did you know it was time to retire? You didn't throw hard, you know. Uh, and he gave me a very good answer, which I relayed back to Jamie. He said, I was fr- afraid of getting hurt 
of balls getting hit back to me that I wouldn't react. And that's I thought that was a really good answer. That's a great answer. You're right. And that's and, uh, when you reach that point, you, you understand. And, um, you know, that's, and, and that, 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 Speaking of Long Island, I want to let everybody know too. Tell us a little bit about, and I'll let throw a couple with Dave, but uh, tell us a little bit about the Scouts Dinner that uh, is so impressive. And you guys were nice enough to give me the Dick Young Award. You know, I think uh, back in 2000, let me see, I got it right here, 2010. So uh, tell us about that dinner. Well, uh, I have run that dinner now for 40 years. Wow. 40, 41 years. And uh, we've had it out. Originally, when I first went, when when Ralph DeLulo first took me as a reward, it was at Shea Stadium in the Diamond Club. Okay. And we were only limited to about 120 people at the time, because that's all you can get in there. And I remember going to my first dinner, and I looked around, and I I was a kid, you know, I was 21 years old and I was a big baseball fan. And, and to me, it was a big thing, the scouts. And I remember Pete Gabrion was the scouting director for the Mets. And it was a thrill for me to meet him and, and all these people that they were honoring. And uh, we had it there for a couple of years. And the first year that I, I remember I ran the dinner, it was at Shea Stadium for well, the first two years. And I, I remember... Uh, we got to 120 people and I couldn't take anybody else. I had to turn people away. I mean, some members and I felt terrible about it. And I, I received a phone call. John Ball was working for the Mets. Joe McElvain was the GM. And they called to tell me that they were remodeling uh, Shea Stadium. And we had to find another place for the dinner. And we had a scout, Sal Magaglione, who was in the restaurant business. He was a part-time scout for the Mets. And he knew the people at Leonard's. And I met Sal, and the two of us went out to Leonard's, and I met the owner of Leonard's. And uh, we, we've had it there ever since. We've had it there, uh, like I said, 38 years, 39 years. And it's become a tremendous dinner. We average... Uh, 200, the biggest crowd we ever had. I think we had 240. Tommy Lasorda was our guest speaker. But but we've honored a who's who through the years. We have The bit, main thing is we have a scout of the year that's voted on by the organization. And we give out a good guy award to one of the scouts also. But the rest are all, we give out a media award, the Dick Young Award, which Kevin, you've received. And we've given it to a lot of media people and TV people. And we give out to a college coach award. We give out a high school coach award. Uh, we give out a star of the future award to up and coming players that were signed out of the area. And it, it's really a big party, more so than a dinner. Uh, we have a big cocktail hour. Nobody wants to leave the cocktail hour to get into the dinner. We have to force the people to go in there. And it's just a great affair. I mean, it's the most talked about affair probably in the country as far as a scout's dinner. Well, and I think the great thing about it, too, is that, every, and, and you touched on it, but you, you got so many different levels, you know, from amateurs to pros to, to uh, you know, major leaguers who come back. But it's everybody who loves, it's really a love of baseball dinner. And uh, it's so special in that respect. And you, and uh, it's, it's, it's and when you get all you guys together in one room, there's a lot of stories. So I, I would... Uh, I would highly recommend this to anybody, uh, you know, especially in the winter, you, you're getting set for the spring. This is a great dinner to go to really get your baseball fixed. Well, this dinner kind of kicks off the season. But, you know, the big thing, like you just said, Kevin, all the levels of baseball, everybody is very approachable. I mean, yes. we have we have big leaguers there, ex-big leaguers, scouts, college coaches. I mean, and if you want to go over and ask for an autograph or just go over and ask somebody a question – nobody's turning you away. Nobody will walk away from you. I, I mean, it's just, and like I said, we've had a who's who there through the years and, and you hear stuff. I, uh, I mean, it's just unbelievable. Uh, we had one of our last dinners. We didn't have it the last two years because of COVID. I had to cancel it. Well, I hope you have it this year. Oh yeah. We're going to, oh, yeah, we're going to have it. What we're going to do is the people that we were going to honor last year, we're just going to bring back this year. And, but the, Dinner that we had a couple of years ago, let's say we had Bobby Valentine as our guest speaker. And one of the people we were honoring was Edgardo Alfonso. And uh, 
at Gatto played for Bobby, and Bobby said some really nice things about him. And I could see the look on Edgardo's face like, wow, he really thought that about me? You know, little things like that. I mean, you, you feel so good about it. But I mentioned Tommy Lasorda, and he was the best. He told stories, and you can just imagine what, what kind of stories he told. He had everybody rolling in the aisles that night. But I'll say this. He signed every autograph. When the dinner was over, people lined up by the dais. And I saw him leaving. I went over to thank him. He said, no, I'm going to the restroom. You tell everybody to just wait there. I will sign every autograph. And he did. I'll never forget that. He signed every autograph for anybody that wanted one. Well, he still was that uh, guy from Pennsylvania, you know. Uh, yeah. You know, Tom, Tommy was interesting in a couple of ways. And, and you know this if you've ever gone to dinner with Tommy. You know, that dinner, whatever dinner it was, wherever it was, Tommy uh, Tommy did exactly what you just said there. He he entertained. So that was his way of paying for the dinner. <laughs> well, I had I, I was with Tommy plenty. And, you know, going back to Ralph DeLulo, Ralph used to run around Pennsylvania. I should say Tommy used to run around Pennsylvania with Ralph as right. a scout. And that's one right. of the things I said, are you kidding me? But when I first joined the Bureau... Ralph said to me, I was going to my first organization meeting out in Arizona. And Ralph said to me, let's go out a couple of days early. We're going to go to Los Angeles and go see the Dodgers play and then the Angels. And uh, I'm friends with Tommy Lasorda. And I said, okay, again, I didn't know him yet enough to believe him. And we go to Dodger Stadium. It's the only time I was ever there. And Al Campanis was the GM. And Ralph says, we're going up to see Al first. So we go upstairs and uh, he doesn't know that he's coming. And he tells the secretary who he is. And Al comes right out of the office and brings the two of us in. He tells him I, I'm from Brooklyn. So he was asking me plenty of questions. But the best was we go downstairs to watch BP. And uh, we're right by the dugout. And there's no fans in the stands yet. And uh, Jay Johnstone had just come out. And you see his name on the back. And Ralph yells to him, hey, Johnstone, where's Lasorda? Like that. And he goes, He's in the clubhouse. He goes, go get him. So Johnstone looks at him like, huh? He goes, go get him. He goes, tell him the Jet is here to see him. And I turned to Ralph. I said, the Jet? He's not going to know who it is, the Jet. He goes, he'll know. He'll know. Johnstone comes back out and he goes, he's coming. He said, he'll be right out. As we're sitting there, you can hear Tommy's voice from underneath. Hey, Ralphie, where are you? I mean, I couldn't make this stuff up. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Now, Billy, you're, you're with a – we talk a lot about the state of the game currently, and I'm going to take you up to to the future now. You're If you're still involved with this, I, I, I think you're an advisory board member with Save the Game. Yes. You tell our audience what, what – I mean, obviously that group is seeing some things in baseball that need need adjustment, need movement forward. Tell us about the organization, your involvement with it, and what are you trying to do with it? Well, Kevin Gallagher is the one that started this. Kevin had written a book uh, teaching young kids how to hit. Because all you're seeing today is launch angle, launch angle, launch angle, and uh, people not making contact, going the other way, uh, things like that. And to me, what got me interested in baseball at eight years old when my dad registered me for Little League was – I thought it was the greatest feeling in the world, uh, bat to ball, swinging the bat and making contact. And that's such kid- a great point. That's such a great point, Billy. Don't want to interrupt, but I mean, that's, yes. I think that's the essence of it for kids. You're, you're right. You know, and, and that's what got me interested and in. I wanted to play. I, I really liked swinging the bat and making contact and hitting the ball. I, I was pretty good at it. And uh, so we're not seeing that with kids today. I, I mean, and everybody's being taught the same way and, and, there's no offense in the game. And I go to ball games, and I've said this for a number of years. I go to the ballpark. I mean, I have the Brooklyn Cyclones right by my home. It's a mile from my house. I walk over to the stadium. If you look in the stands, you don't see young kids. They're not watching the game today. They're not watching the game at the stadium. They're not watching the game on TV. I, I know when I grew up, and Kevin, you grew up, the Mets and the Yankees, let's say, in this area, they were all on TV. All the games are free. Everything's on cable now. As a matter of fact, you can't even get some of the games. They're on Prime or Apple or whatever it is. And 
they've lost fans because of this, but the kids aren't interested. They have other things. They have other things to occupy their time. So save the game. We're trying to get more kids involved, get kids interested at a younger age and, and get them in the ballparks and things like that. And, and uh, just uh, basically play the game, get them out on the fields, do things like that and get major league baseball to do things. I mean, it's become so expensive to go to a game for, for a father to take a family to the ballpark where they used to, let's say the dad used to go uh, three or four times a season. They, they can luck, luckily if they can go to one game, you got to take out a bank loan before you go to a major league game. You know, that's a great point, Billy. And let me just interject growing up. I, I remember too, and I'm sure you can, this was probably a situation for you guys too uh, in New York, but my, my father was a cop and we used to, um, you know, they would, obviously he would get tickets sometimes because of his job. That would help. But also they would always, like the local bar, I still remember Buffy's Bar and Grill, they would run two, three, four, maybe, you know, a couple, three, four uh, bus trips to games. And mm-hmm. you would go with a group and it just was such a great experience. All that's been all that's been passed aside by baseball, and they don't give a damn about it. It's sad. Yeah, no, it is sad. It really is. And like I said, they have these giveaways. Uh, I know at the minor league ballpark here, if an adult buys a ticket, you could bring, let's say, your, your kids in for free. And I don't even see it. You would think that there would be people at the park, you know, with young kids, but you don't see it. You really don't see it. Well, let's give a shout out here too. What it brings up too. Uh, uh, and he's a longtime New York guy. We'll have him on the show at some point. But Gary Perone and what he's trying to do in Staten Island, what, what's your view of that? Well, Gary, you know, I've been a, a so-called the little birdie on Gary's shoulders since he got out of college, you know, and I've helped him along in his career, throughout his career. And uh, Gary has worked his way up to the GM of the uh, Staten Island Ferry Hawks, which is an independent team in the Atlantic League. And uh, he's done a great job as far as, on social media, trying to get people to come out to the park and they're building something out there. And, uh, Gary worked here for the Brooklyn Cyclones for, I guess, 20 years. And, uh, he's been a big part of New York city baseball, amateur baseball. They have a thing called a borough cup tournament with him and Johnny Franco started. And, uh, they had that Sandlot teams from around the city and they play this big tournament, uh, in July and which culminated at uh, now it's Mamamides Park, and it culminated this year in Staten Island. And uh, Gary is being inducted with me, which I'm very happy to say, in the New York State Baseball Hall of Fame in November. Fantastic, yeah. No, I, with um, and you've got another award that's coming up too, Billy. And I don't, I don't, I know you're humble and don't like to talk about that stuff, but tell our audience a little about this meritorious service award that you're getting? Uh, th- this this really shocked me. Uh, I'm, I'm receiving from the New York chapter of the Baseball Writers Association of America. Uh, it's uh, uh, William Slocum slash Jack Lang Meritorious Service Award. And they've never honored a scout before. I'm the first one. This is 90 years Wow, and, and I received a phone call. It was last October from uh, Kenny Davidoff, formerly of the New York Post. And uh, Kenny calls me up, and he's a friend of mine. And uh, he says to me, "When's the last time you came to the writers' dinner?" Now the writers' dinner, you have to wear a tuxedo, and and you go. It's a formal affair. And he says to me, "When's the last time you came to this dinner?" I said, probably 35 years ago when the price of the ticket started going up and I, I was afraid to put it on my expense account. Right, right. And when I went, like I said, Ralph took me and then I used to go with Herbie Stein, who was a longtime scout with the twins. And uh, I don't know, I stopped going. It became, like I said, too expensive. And so I said, 35 years ago, he said to me, well, you're coming this year. I said, I am. Why am I coming this year? And he tells me I'm going to get this award. And I went silent. I said, wait a minute. I said, have you ever honored scouts before? He said, no, I don't think so. So, I mean, I was really in shock. I got off the phone. There was nobody home, so I couldn't tell anybody. I pulled out my computer and I looked the award up. 
And I see the first time the award was given out, it went to Babe Ruth and went to Walter Johnson and Connie Mack. And I'm looking through the years, Willie Mays, Stan Musial, and 10 years ago when they switched it over, Joe Torre got it and CeCe Sabathia. And I'm going, what's Billy Blitzer doing on this list? You know, I, I, I'm really, like you say, humble. I, I don't tell people about this. Well, Kenny happened to call me back about two weeks later because he had to write a story about me, I, I guess, for whatever they're doing there, a book or whatever. And I said to him, kidding around, laughing, I said, Kenny, I said, when I go walking, and on this day, on this particular dinner, I had seen, you know, they give out the MVP award and the Cy Young award. and the yeah, it's the biggest Media. dinner. It's the biggest yeah, it's dinner. In the country, yeah. And and besides that, Pete Alonzo was getting an award and uh, Aaron Judge was getting an award and Derek Jeter was getting an award and Kim Ng and Billy Blitzer. So I said to Kenny, laughing, I said, Kenny, when I go walking up on that dais, they're going to think I'm the waiter picking up the dirty dishes. They're not going to know who I am. And he says, no, no, we know who you are. They'll know who you are. But I made a joke about it. But this is like the greatest thing. But the dinner was canceled because of COVID. So I guess, you know, they're going to put two dinners together this year. But uh, I said to him, you know, when he called to tell me the dinner was canceled, I said, I don't care about the award. I said, I want to go through the experience or something like that. Right. I mean, I sat out in that audience and, and, and just to be sitting up on that dais with all these people around me, to me, I'm still a fan. You know, even though I know everybody and I, and I know how people look to me, you know, when I come into to the ballpark or whatever, to me, I'm still a fan. And to me, it's a great thrill to even be considered to, to be at this dinner. You know, it's, it's, it's a great thing. And that hopefully will come off in January. Billy, I got two more for you. Uh, let's call this the eighth and ninth innings here. You've done a great job and really gave the, our listeners some insight into your profession and the love of the game. But uh, two quick things I have for you I'll let you handle. One is uh, tell the people about your experience, too, with the World Series, being with the Cubs all those years. And, um, you know, uh, I think Theo did it a good thing for you. And uh, just explain that to everybody, what that was all about. Because, again, you, you, you know, people don't understand this. They don't hear it. It's good to understand this part of the game. Well, that that may be the number one highlight of my career. What happened was uh, the year before we were in the World Series, we went to the playoffs, which was unexpected. Theo brought all the scouts out and all the baseball people from the organization. And uh, he told everybody to assemble along the right field line behind the stands. And we didn't know why. And we come to find out he wanted us to walk on the warning track from right to left field so the people in Chicago and all over the country can see who assembled this this team that was representing the Chicago Cubs. And he wanted the fans to see us and they can applaud us. So Theo came over to me. Uh, I was standing with everybody else and they said, uh, Billy, to the front of the line, Theo wants to talk to you. So I go out to the front and, and Theo says to me, I want you to lead everybody out. He said, you're the veteran here. You've meant so much to this organization. I got all choked up. So I came out. They had me come out like 20 feet in front of everybody else, and I'm waving to everybody in the stands. But came the following year, we're going to the World Series, and we had a big party before. Theo's up on going to talk to everybody, and he comes over to me first, and he says, you ready to do it again? I said, absolutely. But this time... Now, this is the World Series. People were all jacked up. I came out, and this time, instead of just going from right to left, they told me to walk the warning track and then walk down past the Cub dugout and then exit on the other side near home plate. Wow. So we, I had to walk around the entire stadium, and uh, I'll never forget, our pitcher was loosening up, and Lester Strode, who was a, a bullpen coach, and Lester was in the organization for many years, like myself, as a minor league uh, pitching coordinator, whatever. As he was there and I was walking by him, I hugged him and I whispered to him, Lester, we finally made it. Oh, that's nice. And then when I got to the dugout, Joe Madden had all the players out on the dugout steps and Theo and Jed was standing there and uh, 
the owner of the Cubs, Mr. Ricketts, was out there shaking our hands and giving us high fives. It, it had to be the highlight of my career to to be able to lead everybody out like that and everybody in the stands just cheering and yelling. And I, I think, Kevin, you were in the press box, so you saw me coming around like that. Yeah, it's uh, you know well deserved because you you know you um, you and also all the other scouts you know these are guys on the other side of the fence you know they're they're going to uh, you know ballparks and, and places that no one else goes to and uh, you know it's the heart of the game and and in, in many ways too it kills me about the game now because so many are being cast aside but that's a story for another day yeah yeah you know we'll keep it positive here but. Uh, you know, so so you guys deserve that, and and which brings me to my last question, and, and we try to we try to end, uh, and it's great from different perspectives, but we try to end the show with a, a simple question, and there's no really simple answers, but you know, and and it fits in many different ways. But what does it mean to you to be a ball player? That's a simple question. Give us your answer. Well, I wasn't a ball player as far as major league, but. It meant the world to me to be involved with Major League Baseball, just to be involved with the game. Uh, like I said, since I was a kid, that's all I wanted to do. I wanted to be a Major League player. But uh, when Lee Mazzilli tried out for the team, I knew that wasn't going to be. So I thought maybe I'd stay in the game somehow as a coach. And uh, how I ended up uh, as a scout, you know, in professional baseball, uh, I say all the time, the fickle finger of fate touched me on the shoulder. And, uh, you know, and I was able to make a career of it. And, and I, I wouldn't change anything for the world. As you know, you know, I love my job. I love doing it. I met a lot of people, been to a lot of places, but uh, just the love of the game, I guess, kept me going. And uh, that that's pretty much it. That's been great, Billy. I, I wish uh, wish you luck with Save the Game. It needs saving right now. We're trying to do our part here on the podcast as well, especially with guys like you with Real Voices of the Game. You've touched a lot of lives, um, and I know I smiled the whole interview. Uh, just very genuine and and uh, great stories, and all these people that met you throughout the year, whether it was scouts or ball players, just know you made a difference, um, and I hope you do. I want to thank you for being on Real Voices of the Game. Uh, you were a great episode, and I think our audience is, is going to take away a ton from this. So thanks again, Billy. I really appreciate you having me on, and I enjoyed doing it. And, Kevin, I'll see you one of these days down the line. Absolutely.